been a while, so welcome to Trying to Be Kind, a podcast that looks at academic texts as they might relate to the table t- tabletop RPG space. And we have our usual gang over this book, the book being, um, of course, Otaku, Japan's Database Animals by Hiroki Azuma. And as usual, we have our question, care of the wonderful Fiona. So, Fiona, you might want to introduce yourself with a question because you thought of it. Hi, I'm Fiona Maeve Geist, and I guess I'm a doctor. Um, I'm also on this show, and the question this week for our intrepid listeners who will maybe send us mailbags or... I got recognized by a listener, by the way. Um, wow. Oh. Weird. Uh, is, what are you a snob about? And I'm a snob about fucking everything. I am literally <laughs> the most snobbish person I know. I am arrogant, I am incredibly conceited, and I think that I am right about everything I believe, and that if other people believe otherwise, it's actually because they just don't understand what truth and beauty are. But this is because I pursued a degree in philosophy. (laughs) And beauty is the same as truth, is the same as the eternal form of knowledge, which you can gain by learning things like the Heimlich Maneuver, one of the temple secrets of Sobek. Fun fact. Oh my god, okay. Alright then. <laughs> okay, to make things easier, I'll do it. I'll I'll answer okay. the question. Hi, it's Mahar. I what am I a snob about? I'm a snob about musical theater. So mm-hmm. yeah, like my okay, so I for the longest time I lived in what I call the Broadway bubble. I will I will honestly say that I did not listen to any other music for probably five years, I think 2007 to 2011, 2012. <laughs> I probably didn't listen to anything in musical theater. And um, yeah, I also, to how do I put this? I went so far as to, oh wait, you're listening to modern contemporary Broadway. I like the indie stuff. <laughs> I listened to Asik and Paul oh, while they were still in college before the whole Dear Evan Hansen thing. You know, it's, it's, it's gross. It's really, really gross. Um, and yeah, but I'm a snob about that. Like, to the point that if someone sings musical theater in front of me, I need to leave the room if I don't like them singing. Because, oh, I, no. I, I, because I can't hide the expressions on my face. I, I just can't. Yeah. I don't want someone to feel bad that... Uh, 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 as if I could sing well, right? But yeah. Like, not at a professional level. Are you level. Mahar? Like, you actually are a good singer. Um, my undergrad degree is in theater with, a, with an emphasis on musical theater. There yes, I'm in a car. Makes sense. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. You can see me on Broadway open nights every Thursday here in Hong Kong. <laughs> How about you, Jer Bear? Uh, so my name's Jared. And um, while, I'm, while I am snobbish about many, many, many things... Um, I think the thing that I'm most justifiably snobbish about, that is the thing that I actually have the most training in, is coffee. And it's it's one of those things where I'm so I I don't talk about it, but I I like y'all, I know more and have done more in coffee than any human you've ever met, guaranteed. Like I can't like overstate it, you know, like when you're that kind of authority on a thing and it's weird. But I'm, I'm like so far gone on the snobbishness scale that I've like fallen out the bottom and now I only drink instant. Nice. Um, but yeah, like I did sensory analysis for most of a decade. Like I was, I was tasting and judging coffee professionally. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like wow. this is, yeah. Uh, sidebar. Maybe you can do like cool tricks to make macchiato. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was an educator. <laughs> Oh in coffee but does coffee Dang. formalize flair because like at least with like alcohol you never have to formalize doing any of the dipshit stuff bartenders do you know um when i was coming up um stuff like latte art was like still kind of new and underground that's how old i am um i was one oh of the God. first people in my area who learned how to do it you know oh, wait a minute um, so basically we are hearing jared admitting to be the education hipster of coffee. Oh yeah, yeah. I was there. Before, I was there when uh, um, like latte art became a thing. Before, be- <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah. So I, I used to teach people to do it. Like I, I had a milk class and that was, it was not a latte art class. And I told people that we were going to talk about milk scientifically and junk. I was going to ask you for that side note, right? Did that mean were you, were you so scientific that you would ask, like you would look at say the fat density of milk for proper frothing? Were you that level of person? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We, we talked about fat content, water content, protein content, sugar content. Um, Jared, all I that think junk. a little bit of me just fell in love with you. Just a <laughs> Yeah. Little. Yeah. No, it got, It'll- it got deeply nerdy. <laughs> and it's to the point that like, I would, I would make cheese for them in front of them and then while, while I lecture. Yeah. Like it was like, you'd make a fresh cheese, you know, with some lemon juice. Oh my God. The whole nine. Mm-hmm. Jared is the crunchiest among us. Yeah, <laughs> and that was so... just a milk class. Like that's not even coffee. <laughs> yeah. I'm so happy. All the I'm forms so, of milk. <laughs> I'm so happy right now, Jared. We're gonna have to talk after this after this recording. I have well, so. Well, while, while we're here, I'm gonna tell a milk story. I'm gonna try and keep it short, but I'm gonna tell a milk story. So when I was still new in coffee, like a young, young, young man, um, we had a situation at the coffee shop. I was I was managing a coffee shop. And we had a situation where. Um, the milk was, was like not steaming correctly. Um, it wouldn't hold texture suddenly. And it would happen sort of intermittently on every other delivery or so. And so I called up Coburg. Like I just called up our milk people, which is a pretty big um, corporation. And they didn't know what to do with me because <laughs> I was asking <laughs> like really high level questions, like really weird inside baseball questions. I don't want to say high level questions, but like the concerns I had were really weird. So they basically just put me through to their scientists. They were like, we're just going to give you to our scientists. And I spent the next, I don't know, maybe the next week, two weeks on and off the phone with the, with the dairy scientists at Coburg trying to figure out what was going on with our milk. It turns out it was a problem with delivery and they tightened up their, um, their delivery because it was the the proteins were denaturing because they would leave them out in the sun for too long it was not actually a safety problem like it was fully within regulations but it was enough that it showed up when we steamed it like it was that I'm level of weird. Oh. i'm sorry but the proteins were denaturing has anyone uh-huh. heard a yeah. sexier sentence oh my god Goodness. <laughs> I, yeah. Okay. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Moving on. Um, yeah. <laughs> let's hear from Emma. I'm glad I went last because I had to think about this. I Maybe I'm delusional, but I don't think I'm a snobby person. <laughs> uh, wow. But I have been an academic for quite a while and I have a PhD. So clearly it's easy to say like I'm a snob in my area of expertise. But like... You kind of have to be or else you get eaten alive. But outside of that, I think the main thing that I'm snobby about at this point is going to be almost as random as milk is uh, (laughs) yarn. So like yarn for knitting and weaving with and other (laughs) textile fibers. It's one of the few places where I have strong and sometimes random opinions and okay. sometimes get shown some yarn. I'm just like, ew. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Now Emma is so attracted to me right now also. <laughs> oh my God. I, I, this is, oh, Emma. Emma, do you have opinions on Merino versus Alpaca? Oh my God. I do, oh. actually. <laughs> well, it depends on the blend, but also, yeah. Um, uh, what I'm getting from this is Bahar just likes expertise and opinions. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not just that. It's expertise in things I enjoy. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, no, no, look, I was a secret cross-stitcher in high school. Amazing. I have opinions on yarn and, and like, embroidery silks. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You do something like handcrafting and you form opinions about the materials you have to work with. Yeah. Exactly. Oh my goodness. And then, I'm sorry. It's like uh, the admission of the Merino, that the fact that Emma has a side on the Merino versus alpaca debate. <laughs> um, and the fact that 
the word denaturing was used naturally in front of us, like organically. It was very smooth. Oh, oh my goodness. And podcast. <laughs> We're done. No, I was flustered. We, we can't go on. Object lesson. What I'm, you know? I'm blushing. It's I'm so happy. <laughs> sorry. That's good. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Uh, so anyway, like going back to what we were dealing with from last time. So we <laughs> like not to put on our actual true snobberistic hats. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so we'd um, we'd we'd ended around the time when uh, the author was focusing on moe elements, where we're treated to various elements of moe, where we literally were describing <laughs> diagrams of this is the anime girl, all the way from like you know perky hair to cowlicks to her cat ears, yeah, <laughs> to her big loose socks. <laughs> and basically how people access these uh, arguments which then became I think this claim that um, and when we're entering right now where um, the database of the database of anime and the database of uh, basically otaku culture was all about the or I think the conjecture was that otaku culture was less interested in a narrative less interested in what truly was being what what myth you were making for yourself but rather the fact that you had these stories that had these recognizable elements that could be branded as anime um and that jumps off this uh grand non-narrative argument he was making and basically that you know this framing of post-modernity post-modernity that i still don't quite understand so <laughs> So we're going to enter now, basically, like, yeah, we're going to enter now this whole notion of what does it mean to consume the database? I think, would that be a fair uh, starting point off, everyone? Yeah. yeah. Like, what does it actually mean to be consumers of a database rather than consumers of a culture? Or rather, what, more specifically, what is it, like, yeah, like, what does it mean to make one's culture about the consumption of elements that are recognizably of this brand or of this thing we've said for ourselves versus a grand non-narrative, that we're, that we're entering a grand non-narrative, that we're not actually saying something about ourselves anymore. Um, so that's basically the accusation he's making, right? And, um, and yeah, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to consume the database, which I think would be useful first is what is that database? Um, so, which was, you know, yeah. wouldn't that be useful? You know, <laughs> that was <laughs> explained a little better, and the diagrams actually, yeah. So here, <laughs> as I think from last episode, I'm in a position that I literally hate as a snob of defending someone else's thesis um, because I think I'm the most charitable for once, which I hate, but. <laughs> what does consuming a database mean? And some of this is my projection, but I think I can outline his case pretty effectively. So what Asma's kind of arguing, right, is that like there's this concept that we're no longer really dealing with this idea that there's some sort of platonic form of knowledge. We're instead kind of using this flat plane of hypermodernity where there's all of these signifiers that we kind of recombine and consume. And... That's kind of basic post-modernity under Baudrillard, who, since he name-checked, I feel pretty safe saying. Um, you know, that's the simulacra and simulacrum thing. And then he is sort of constructing this idea that, like, there's this subculture, and they're really weird in a certain and particular way, that take a lot of time being very interested in the fan productions of people somewhat tracing a professional industry. You know, in that, one, how a lot of animators, mangaka, and, like, generally people that work in nerd culture industries in Japan, you know, including video games, um, often go to fan conventions that are around shared interests, and in the 80s, some of them became animation studios. What's interesting from a post-modernity standpoint, where you're kind of sidestepping where is the machinery of the culture industry and jumping at who are these nerds on the internet that kind of are a cultural thing 
makes essentially the argument of like, look at their forum culture and how they develop this Moe concept. And then they all kind of do a Wittgenstein's builder thing at each other where people argue about who is best waifu. But if you don't really have a deep knowledge of the culture that they're talking about, it doesn't make any fucking sense because they all kind of look like Lum. A reference that I don't know why he doesn't make because it's, I think, one of the most fucking obvious ones that transforms animation and makes a better start and end point. But I'm also a pedant snob trying to make the case for someone else. So what does it mean that there's now this consumer society that hangs out on the internet and uses forums to organize anime specifically girls is his obsession and i think it's because he sees it as more titillating you know to like identify what are the elements they think are cute and drawn figures where often there's traced elements because you know this is also a element where these fans also produce and then circulate things and then make their fan-made works and then they gather and like this is a nerd fandom but like they're not following a grand narrative anymore because there isn't one. Gundam isn't going to end. Gundam will just find a new way to be Gundam and Gundam will support to some degree you making fan paintings of your various models that you enjoy or making an additional Man sticker, you know, where it's in the style of and no one can deny, but it's not part of the intellectual property of the 177 stickers. And I think that this is a good way to look at post-modernity, but I think I've also just like pulled and operationalized this to the point that it's a very stripped down idea. And that is why Fiona has the PhD, folks. Up <laughs> 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 in philosophy, no less. Well, um, yeah. Uh, the <laughs> I used to okay, be able to do is... that and card tricks at the same time. I would do it and do tarot reading um, and just okay. do discussion. It was a really great trick. And this is why we don't do video. Uh, can you... <laughs> <laughs> like, and and at the end of the day, was your card the Queen of Hearts? No, but seriously, though, thanks, Fiona. Like, that does capture quite a lot of what we were trying to talk about. Um, admittedly, I'm still trying to digest your stuff even as i'm trying to digest this author i mean like sidebar is a key it's the same complaint from previous months which is where he suggests an idea doesn't develop it or he says much later on this is where you can actually understand my idea but it's someone else or he'll do the extra or he'll actually just like copy and paste someone else's work for like three pages so well he will quote them substantially sorry let's yeah. be proper academics <laughs> Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, like, the, the the problem with that, I mean, is like when you get into this model of uh, consumption that Fiona brought up, like when you make these connections, it's almost like an inductive approach. One could dare say a cherry picked approach to saying what makes something otaku, because mm. <clears throat> basically it's like it's not deductive where you have rules like otaku means they like girls with big eyes and uh, hair that sticks out. You know, it's, it's not like that. It's more of, it seems more of the reverse, which is, oh, I see hair that sticks out. Oh, I see um, a spacesuit. Oh, I see the eyes are like this. And they kind of look alike, which is I found rather strange because I've always thought that anime in and of itself was rather, especially now, is in, increasing its in diversity. Mm-hmm. Well, even when I was younger, I was like, wait a minute. You had, at one point in time in the 80s, anime guys were almost always, well, not almost always, but like anime actually was one of the few places where you had characters of multi-ethnicity. Uh, some kind of a, uh, I don't know where that came from. I think one of the um, first interracial kisses in U.S. television was Robotech, which was just a yeah. redubbing of an animated series. Not to say that anime doesn't have its own problematic things. I mean, yeah. like, that's another episode entirely. But um, for a model of progress, the United States <laughs> is where you I know. Died, and it was an import product that broke the barrier. Yeah, yeah, but and and I think that's what. It's it, that's what makes it inductive, and I guess that's why I have misgivings about this method because it is cherry picked. The problem with the inductive method of like defining something is that 
what is the standard by which you pick the elements to say that X was this? Like, based on these three things, I can make this larger rule and larger definition. So that's where I'm kind of like, okay, like, if to me, otaku, I mean, like, it doesn't even talk about, like, I uh, I think it's rather... It also kind of assumes that otaku is purely male um, because it's all about these girls who are, let's be honest, in very sexualized depictions. When we have like whole subgenres, I'm, I mean, come on, like gay kids found many a sexual awakening in anime. So, and we're very mm. much otaku. So I'm like, wait a minute, like, mm, like where was the deep dive into the male form as well, which I found rather like. So anyway, yeah. yeah. So like going into all of these things, so he borrowing on Fiona and the, and his own like whatever claim, he then tracks that now this is how we consume things. And this is where I'm a little bit like, this is where honestly I lose the plot. And I would love to like pick everyone's brains on what they thought of the stuff moving forward. Because after this, I was like, I could not detect the claim anymore. I'm like, what is he saying? I'm I'm having a hard time reading this. <laughs> the sections are pretty chunky. Like, here's an idea. And then here's an idea. And maybe it all gets brought together. But um, I, I still don't entirely see how some of these claims of the database and otaku and everything else is that different from other things. Like, I think I said this last time, I'm working with like hundreds of thousands of years of human culture and society as an archaeologist. And for some of this, it's like, it's really based on the assumption that things were incredibly different before and now is something new. And that there was an original and now there's simulacrum or there's copies versus originals. And it's like, ask an archaeologist about finding the first or the original of something. That gets covered in the news, but most archaeologists don't think or talk like that. And so when that's a major part of what's going on here, I'm guessing that this is more referring to very specific philosophy terms and definitions like their definition of history which i have problems with (laughs) and that might be like a me not keeping track of definitions very well but it's still if i can't keep track of these definitions then there's a problem or it doesn't work for a general audience then it's going to be a big problem because the connotations for a general audience is going to be very different from trained academics Okay, so let's let's unpack that, right? So, okay, okay so basically, <clears throat> this is the one claim that I was getting, uh, alluding to what Emma was saying. In this part about database consumption, um, we could think of the world as a series of files and lots of JPEG. Actually, it's, he's basically saying that otaku culture operates the way that AI art does now. Which is, which it it, it does actually, which is what we see as art right now as an otaku is the result of our mentally having scraped all these other examples in the past and then making a new image each time. Right. So it's kind of like AI. Oh my God, I can't believe we entered that topic. Okay, Mahar, no, (laughs) moving back. So... So basically everything is derivative. And there's this obsession with what is historically the first. Right? And so yeah. when he goes into history, and this is where I think I really need Emma and I need and I need Jared and I need Fiona here to hold my hand because I don't understand this. We got you. <laughs> is that is that this now signals the so-called Hegelian Hegel. Hegelian? I don't know. I just Hegelian. know it's not Hegel because that's like Captain hey. Hegel. Hey, oh. gay. Okay. Hey, now. Hegel. Okay. Philosopher dudes. End of history. So what that basically means is that 
Um, <laughs> my God, I can't believe I'm going to have to go back to undergrad for this. So basically, it's a very specific interpretation of Hegel he's using regarding what history is. So yes. he goes back to good old Alexander Kozhov, and he's this Russian-French dude who basically argues that Hegel uh, argues that to be human is to be someone who has or to have an existence with self-consciousness and awareness, where when you struggle with others, another which are other beings who are not you, who, have, who also have their own self-consciousness, you're going to try to move together because you're struggling between different points of view and different perspectives and different qualities of existence. You're going to move towards basically freedom and knowledge and you know civilization and that the process of all of that struggling is called quote unquote history now the thing is hegel claims that history is over because the struggle is essentially done so like which is strange considering that this is done like at the you know <laughs> well, when it was. What, what happens later <laughs> on all right so so like so, yeah. So that's that's it's it's a lot of a lot of historicity that I honestly don't understand. So I have an answer. When we, so boring. It's okay. <laughs> I mean, like I'll. But I, am I am I parsing it still correctly though, Fiona? Because please correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, you are absolutely okay. Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. So so now this is where we and this end of history in his mind is basically what we're doing right now with otaku culture which is that um there is no struggle anymore oh my gosh let me get back to that because someone's ringing my doorbell but there is no struggle anymore what do you call it there's no struggle anymore regarding the creation of other things because our self-awareness is all basically uploaded and databased and that could presumably mean that our self-consciousness is no longer individual so like are we kind what is the postmodern condition and hegel a short course by a qualified person who has read <laughs> the fucking oh god okay so like the big thing about hegel is that like he's trying to systematize philosophy so that it's easier to learn philosophy by saying that philosophy is a series of contradictions and questions that are resolved by a combination of statecraft and european history european is a pretty vague term because you know for those of you who are american listeners there's a lot of weird concepts about what the west is that um I think are kind of dubious as someone who spent a lot of time reading Greeks and Imperial Romans, if you think you're anything like them. That's maybe even a good thing. However, you know, um, basically Hegel's trying to say that, like, you can kind of summarize all of Greek philosophy and history with something like Antigone, because most people have read it, and it boils down to the contradiction between the state and the private entity, you know, because, like, do the rights of the state overcome the rights of your family? And that the evolution of the state and the individual are kind of part of history that for him accumulates in basically Napoleon. You know, Bonapartism is pretty big around the time. And, you know, if you're living in Central Europe, he is kind of conquering everything and instilling pseudo-democratic reforms. But... um that was supposed to kind of be the end of history is that we would build semi-democratic institutions, we being a very vague term. Um, and history is kind of done. We refine knowledge, but the highest form of statecraft has been achieved. So now we just need to basically unify that, create a world spirit. And then, you know, like it's kind of a backdoor Christianity in that, he views the Enlightenment as the transcendence of Christianity and thus kind of proposes a modern secular world state. But, like, he's also just kind of theory crafting. Anyway, Hegelians like Hegel because it's a good way to make arguments where you can be very vibes based. Because, right, like, <laughs> you can summarize all of, like, 
what is modern Japan by looking at guys on forums, but to some degree also from the perspective, I assume, of a mass reader of this book, you kind of vibes-based, I assume, can intuit maybe more than I can, especially given that I'm reading a translated copy. But that that's kind of, you know, the Zekian trick um, where he's kind of just written one listicle for his entire career. Anyone that tells me that Zizek is their favorite philosopher, I can dismiss anything that they'll say for the rest of their life because until they <laughs> undo that cell phone, they're a tanky that's also not very good at it. So they probably can't beat me up and they definitely can't outsmart me. So they have absolutely nothing to offer me. So, you know, they can fuck off. Um, anyway, <laughs> right. This is kind of the point this is gesturing towards is that like, what is the rise of the internet and these niche cultures? What does it mean when like, we don't have a grand history because right. Like by Hegel standards, most of the world lives under something that resembles his concept of a state. There's very little mm -hmm. attempts to unify them. Um, many of them are quite fractitious and there is pretty frequent warfare, a thing he thought would kind of stop. Um, you know, which is why people that kind of add Hegel to Marxism tend to add class struggle and say, ah, but the world is actually the struggle of the proletarian class through a series of intellectual exercises in which proletarians have become more self-aware so that now we're no longer serfs, we're industrial laborers, but like, we're also industrial laborers that are divided by a bunch of like things such as it's very different to work in a kitchen, to work in a factory, and to work as an adjunct professor, even if you can make about the same amount of money doing all three of those jobs as someone who has done all three of those jobs. You know, they're not difficult in the same way, and they're not rewarded in the same way, and it doesn't have a seeming continuity. Um, um, Fiona, let me ask you a question. Yep. Yeah. So I'm a person who knows more about Hegel than like my mother does. But the things that I know about Hegel are like, well, I know what I know about Hegel from Marx. And then I also know about it from like weird mid-century heresy theology. Yeah. Um, Everyone so like Hegel. Yeah, exactly. Everybody uses Hegel. So it's always like weird. My weird interests lead me back to Hegel eventually. So I have the weirdest view of Hegel imaginable. But I've always gotten the impression, and tell me if this is like fair, that part of Hegel's deal is in order for him to make sense, he has to read like, especially epistemologically, but like, I think just broadly, I think he has to read the like structure of late medieval middle Europe as everything that ever existed up until modernity. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it, like words like Eurocentric are invented to, to some degree describe how Hegel does history. Yeah. You know, given that like, look, Hegel says things about you know most of the world's population that are wildly untrue and negatively compare them to europe as you know a number of later scholars will point out on you know what kind of gets condensed into the china hypothesis of like actually for a long time it had far greater administrative capacity as a theoretical state to like expand and conquer most of the world until you know european willingness to use um ballistics and having fairly well-developed, uh, you know, serfdom uh, became well-suited to uh, making other people labor for them. Um, in that, to answer your question less long and darkly, um, yeah, it, it wants all of the world to look like a series of things because, right, like, one, Hegel thinks he knows everything, Right? Like, he is the pinnacle of human reason, and he is penning this manifesto, allegedly, as, like, the city he's in is being literally marched on by the modern, like, the army of modernization. But, like, it's kind of wild how people sometimes treat this like biblical literalism, rather than, like, this guy has a really good book summarizing a lot of philosophical points, 
mm-hmm. and also kind of pioneers doing a certain thing that's mostly in some ways to usher in a secular state. It's yeah. funny because I feel like um, I think of Hegel and I, I think of Hegel this way as like a definitionally modern, like sort of inventing modern in modernism. You know what I mean? Um, along with like, I don't know, Blake and Nietzsche. But what's funny is <clears throat> so much of what he's doing, like the like baseline Hegelian stuff is I, I, I associate with stuff like pre-modern, very medieval at the latest mysticism. Like we're, we're talking, this is Iamblichus, you know what I mean? Is like doing very Hegelian stuff, but in the middle Platonist period, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's all very, it's surprising how, um, how he's in some ways pulling the things that we neglect of history forward and calling it this new method. I don't know. That's sort of a sidebar, I guess, but I, I always think about it with Hegel. No. And like, that was a very long side I ended up in and I'm sorry. everyone. <clears throat> It's necessary, well, though. Central yes. to all of the points being made here. Yeah. Which might like, be part of the problem I have. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, like, it's a necessary, like, I don't think it's too long for you. And it's, it's, a, it's the necessary theoretical underpinning to kind of understand this text, which might be why you're having an easier time with it than I am, for sure. Because I feel like I need to have my notes from college classes 20 years ago, like return to me so I can really understand it. But the big, the big thing that I think we might want to look at here is that it's, we're not even looking at like Hegel per se. We're looking at Kujevian's idea of what yeah. Hegel said, which is its own, which is its mm. own, um, like <laughs> its own bag of words. It's a recognized interpretation. Well, and, and he, really is like his interpretation of Hegel. Well, it's like a, no one yeah. uses all of Koyev. Like, is Koyev's like some sort of weird Marxist with occasional right wing tendencies? Like, <laughs> people really like the one bit where he takes the bit that, like, I do think holds up really well if you want to say history kind of becomes a flat circle sometimes of. The human animal kingdom in academia is actually one of the ones that makes sense. In that, yeah, you're supposed to cultivate ability and also discernment in a way that is like a hierarchy of like being that's also related to a bunch of like weird and esoteric symbols. Like, what would it mean to be the best philosopher is like a nonsense qualification. The highest paid philosopher is Peter Singer. Um, most undergrads could probably beat him in a debate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know, the, the reason why the whole um, discourse, I hate that word, the discussion about um, animal and human is brought right. up is because... Um, oh, yeah, like, fixates on that part a lot because he wants to say that, like, in a certain way, history has just become the conflict of esoteric forces in which people try to find identity and assert the dominance of identity over society, right? Like we're in a political kingdom in which your affiliation with a set of political goals should be like about trying to overtake institutions and transform them to better cohere to that. Um, Which is like a very French Hegelian point, I'll say pointing to Sorel and like, Look, it French Hegelianism is its own wild thing. <laughs> well, for the sake of this book, it's this is where I, I was like, I literally wrote down on my notebook, huh? <laughs> where, where, where uh, basically, um, where apparently, this is what Koyev, Kojev writes about it. Like, After the end of history, men would construct their edifices and works of art as birds build their nests oh, yeah. and spiders spin <laughs> their webs, would perform musical concerts after the fashion of frogs and cicadas, would play like young animals, and would indulge in love like adult beasts. So basically, like, when human beings stop struggling, <laughs> they are animals. And when human beings, yeah, and when human beings 
finally like, you know what? We're, we're going to struggle against nature. We're not going to act to our nature. We're not going to act towards what nature dictates to us. We are going to, we are powered by snobbery. Snobbery is what makes us human. Yeah. Well, it's what domesticates political violence, right? Like mm-hmm. to fill in the last gap, I think that's in the original argument. It's why he talks about Am Shikaro and like the red Ar- the Red Army faction equivalent in Japan. I forget their actual um, designation that they used, but the, the the Maoist college students that like you know ideological struggle sessioned each other to death before being like raided by well armed national police. That was kind of a scandal, right? Like what snobbery does, and I think why he. Why Koyev wants to point to Edo, where Emma has pointed out that this is kind of like a flattened reading of things that is related to a very it's set history, which kind of gets to vibes-based discourse, right? Mm-hmm. Is how do you make people stop using violence to solve things and start using pedantry? Because that way you can have a technical class. Right? If people will actually just physically fight each other, um, you have kind of a state of interscene warfare, but if people can nerd, right? Nerds can like do math at each other to prove one of them is wrong or not. Like, you know, we work in a hobby that maybe has elements of this where people use rocks that will determine a percentile outcome. But, um, right. Like, and, to kind of fill it in again, he's trying to argue that otaku are kind of this expression of a snobbery, but like, what does this snobbery mean when it's about this thing in post-modernity where it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, you know, like in a parallel, what if a critical theorist looked at deviant art at, you know, a couple years later? I mean, honestly, there are a lot of co- there are a lot of claims here. Like Emma, what did you think? Because I know you this are the ones. My problem is a lot of what we've talked about, and especially what Fiona has explained or discussed in full, is not actually found in ah! this book. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's not. Yeah. So you need a philosophy degree to put these bits together. Because a lot of what I saw from the sections that I've read um, drop some of these definitions and then move on, but also assume that something has been proven and supported and therefore can now be a foundation for another point, and that just isn't there. Because some of the explanation, just for like the existence of Moe elements and this... I gotta say, I don't have a problem with the idea of a database, but I have some problems with how it's presented and how consumption is and how otaku as a culture and as individuals are portrayed because they're kind of being portrayed as lacking. I mean, that's that's very true. That's very true. Like uh, later on when he continues talking about the cynicism that comes after... Yeah. That comes during the 20th century, and then he moves on to another philosopher. He moves on to, like, Zizek. Oh, God. Um, yeah. Or more of a psychoanalyst. Like, he then goes on to say where, um, about this whole notion that I think Zizek is, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, is the thinker who theorized that structure in the most understandable way and who most beautifully reflect the spirit of the transitional period from postmodern, from um, basically from modernity into postmodernity, where to sum up the 20th century, we might say to quote, it was characterized already by the loss of a transcendental grand narrative, as is well known, but one had to believe in the semblance of a grand narrative and this in his own italics, and furthermore, the semblance that life is meaningful. Could you imagine like, being otaku means that you are part of the, we are part, it is a signal of the greater trend that we have lost the idea. Yeah. <laughs> that we no longer believe that wild. life is meaningful. And I'm like, bravo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just so much. And I also agree with that criticism, um, Emma, like, 
if I didn't have you and Fiona here, I would not understand this text. I wouldn't. Mm. I really wouldn't. It, it takes so many things for granted. Like, this is... At the very start of the series, we were looking at this book knowing that it was serialized, right? That this was never actually all published at once. It's only for our the English reader that we all saw it at once. My question is, like because I do not know what Japanese academic culture is like. And if anyone would know, I would like, I'm saying this to the ether as well as to people with me right now. Would people be expected to know these theorists and that in between, in between like public uh, publishing that they would read up on the other stuff because you had gaps of time between the essays being, you know, published. Or is the Japanese education system richly, uh, you know, like gives you a strong background in philosophy that anyone could read this? I, I don't know. I don't, like, I don't I really think the no education system generally, like overall, focuses on philosophy so hard that all of this would immediately make sense to the general public. Yeah, there's 0% chance. But like, you an authority and you just kind of wave your hands. People assume yeah. you're right. I would say, in a lot of ways, this isn't unlike a more casual, like, this is meant for a broader, wider audience, but it kind of reads like a casual, quote unquote, conversation between academics where they're dropping stuff and everyone acts like everyone knows what's being said. And then they go away and try and look up some details. Now, how that would have played out for a general readership, I have no idea because especially at the time that it was being serialized, I don't know how easy it was to access some of this stuff or yeah, how easy it was to access some of this and whether they would even want to <laughs> or would try. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's really interesting to me because when you get down to it, like um, just I do like linking this back to because we're ostensibly a TTRPG podcast. Mm. Ostensibly, right? It's like, um, how do I put this? It's, I think, okay, I'm, uh, is this the one where I get canceled again? Okay, where, where, <laughs> well, because the thing is, the meaningfulness right now, the argument of meaningfulness, not necessarily in the grand narrative, I don't think gaming has a grand narrative as much as he claims it does have like you know, in general but um there is a sense of meaningfulness through one's snobbery in the ttrpg space it's when for example people like like basically to play dnd is to be an animal to not play dnd is to be human yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, you that know, is definitely. It's going you know, around, yeah. You know, I think, and I think that is where we might need to look at ourselves at the potency of a value judgment when it's when it might not use those words, but it follows the same framework. We are essentially like, you know, we are we are looking at you know many people even argue the death of the RPG. Like, do RPGs even really exist anymore? Because now we're not playing. Um, whenever you talk about system matters, that becomes another one of those um, instances of snobbery where people are essentially demarcating who the human beings are, a.k.a. the thinking meaningful ones, versus, you know, the animals who eat grass and chew cud. Like, that's the sheep, you know? Like, that's basically where we're at. And I think all of this, like um, all of these, um, all of this discussion right now, I'm glad got us to this realization for me regarding TTRPGs, because it's mm. it is a it is we are acting like, like to, to say what like again like what Emma said like we are acting like we are the first ones to have this great grand. Um, creative struggle especially when we look at design discussions when we are not like what you're actually arguing for is a way to validate one's sense of meaningfulness 
by linking it to a value judgment that may or may not uplift one's humanity over the humanity of others. I mean, like, that's, that is something I think people should reflect on because I'm trying to be kind here. Y'all are snobs and it's got to stop. <laughs> that's yeah. what it really means. Like, you can have discussions about, like, the economic implications of having a monolith, a monopoly, dictating what a TTRPG is. Like, we get that. But it's another thing to say that those who are complicit in the game and its design are now complicit in so many other things. It's like, oh yeah, you know, well, it's, it's like... Yeah. Mistaking of scale, intent, and also actual, like, influence and in who's doing what. And that's some of my problem with some of the sections of this book as yeah. well is... Yeah. Confusing and conflating and speaking for other people and talking about other people's intentions. Bitch, you don't know someone else's intentions unless they tell you. You know. And there's nothing here to suggest that there was any kind of actual reception or interactive studies with Otaku other than way back in the beginning when it's like, Oh yeah, I'm part of this culture. It's like that's not good enough. It's a (laughs) it's a badly done good faith reading of Otaku. And that's being kind. Because one can easily say there was some malice involved in some of the characterizations made of otaku culture here. Yeah. Well, I feel like it's, it's intentionally sensationalized. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. is, oh, yeah. like, Absolutely. I think, why it makes a nice parallel reading for everything. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I mean. I, like, yeah. It no, is combative, too. Yeah. And I think that's partly because it is a popular academic book but also kind of the way some Japanese academic stuff is written there's a real come at me bro kind of vibe to a lot of Japanese academic papers even within archaeology that still happens in North American stuff but not nearly to the same degree and if it happens people are like oh so you've encountered this kind of like behavior before this kind of writing yeah Yeah. and the, the approach to structuring an argument and putting things out there and saying stuff as if it just is and you should accept um, it. I have read a published philosophy paper, you know, like a series of them, in which in an argument over the barber's problem, you know, the barber cuts everyone in the village's hair who cuts the barber's hair, um, which is a like set theory problem that I believe mathematics considers solved, but philosophy doesn't. Two, two grown-ass men, both with tenure, over the course of years, insult, like, have opening published paragraphs where they insult each other's academic credentials, like yeah. advisors, students, and current teaching positions, over literally what is considered a solved problem in the actual field it matters in, but logician yeah. philosophers like believing that, like, Oh, it couldn't be solved just because it can be transcended. We have to have more <laughs> unsolved problems than any other field because it makes us feel superior. And in um, no way does this create uh, sundowning culture. I mean, like, this is partly where I have issues with the whole history thing. It's like, okay, this is a philosophical definition of history. And yeah, maybe some historians have played with it. But my God, did you talk to any historians? <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, like, look at look. other definitions of history and how they work. And it, now it's a particularly touchy term because some people don't want history as a practice to be around, but other people are saying, well, you can't not. Because to me, something like history is just all of the stories we tell about the past. Okay, and so. History be incredibly exclusive, and now it's getting broader. And so, some of it is giving more people history and historicizing things. Blah blah blah. Okay, I mean, like, let's. But, uh, this is the hot take, which yeah. again is unearthed from having read this book. So, what we've basically done, I think, for this particular book is half of it is looking at the content, and half of it is looking at the execution, right? Yes, and I think the thing that's not to it's hard not to and i think that's a completely fair way like the argument itself is not the problem sometimes it's the problem the problem is that how one executes the argument means that the argument comes out garbled and now we're lost so execution matters or angry or angry (laughs) it makes us us angry (laughs) now 
based off of everything we're doing like this, my, uh, this is my PSA to the greater design community as a whole. Please, and I say this with love in my heart and with care for everyone, please don't make people like Emma mad when you oh. go on Twitter <laughs> and you start spouting off all of these things that make up your argument when A, there is no discernible claim, B, there's no justification for the evidence used, C, you presume that everyone knows the same jargon that you're using in your design world, and uh, D, I believe, which is you need to make sure that you actually aren't cherry-picking the theory that you need at the time. Because guess what? And I say this again with love because I'm so tired of TTRPG discussions, which just go south because no one's ever on the same page, because no one ever decides to truly write out their frameworks where it can all be read at the same time. And Twitter doesn't count. Twitter doesn't <sighs> count. Okay, repeat. Twitter doesn't count. Because that's the best way to get like, you know, misunderstood. It's the fast that we all know this. It's a hellscape. So, so you, and I, so please also, don't be like Twitter. this book. I suggest everyone read this book to look at the problems of execution regarding one's theoretical frameworks before making an argument, before you say, this is how an art form should be understood. Because then you're going to make us angry. I do, I do have one <laughs> thing that I have no answer to, but if we're going to wrap up, I just kind of want to come back to because you asked me like how this might have been received within like the within Japan at the time or now and what I'm thinking about now is Japan has its own history of philosophy and East Asia and Asia does in general that's you know say not everyone in the West is super familiar with so I'm curious how some of this like continental Western <laughs> philosophy is received within the context of a deep history of you know local philosophy and regional i mean well that's an interesting area of history that i do know a little bit about (laughs) because that was what i wanted to specialize in yeah yeah. on oh the Kyoto School See, and Germany were exchanging at exactly what years? Yeah, and I feel like some of the stuff that he really picks up on here is just stuff that also easily aligns with maybe some popular thought from Japanese philosophy. And I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm coming, like, in archaeology, I'm coming from a field where. Archaeology in Japan is notorious since the 1970s or 80s for not incorporating a lot of theory. Nothing is ever a-theoretical, but, you know, they didn't make any effort to incorporate theories of any sort, so... To fully substantiate with what they're coming from? I mean... Yeah, or, like, to really think about why something is important or what it could tell us or what could be wrong with or, you know, self-reflexive stuff, too. I mean... Fiona, could you imagine all of this hoi polloi over continental philosophy as applied in the Japanese context? We haven't even gotten the analyticals ones in. Well, here's ah! the really interesting thing is only Angelo's care about like analytic philosophy at all. It is like incredibly unpopular and its persistence is because it was originally useful to computer programming. That's why most of those programs are being eliminated. I'm sorry. This is a dig at someone I used to know who insisted that my fondness for continental philosophy marked me as an inferior philosopher. Oh, wow. I know. I actually believe in analytical philosophy. (laughs) Learned a fucking program. There is my incredibly hot take to close this. Um, If you believe that it's a superior thing, learn a fucking programming language because that's basically the ultimate realization of your philosophical field. Eventually, chat will talk back to you and you'll have a friend. Okay, sorry. I'm sorry. This is what I'm allowed to close on just actually being outright cruel.
on that note though, uh, I mean like, this, if I don't like the book, I, I at least like the discussions it creates between the four well, of us. Yeah. I do think the book is remarkably successful at discussion generation. I don't know if it like succeeds at writing, which is why I feel the need to play devil's advocate for a period of time to like present the best case scenario for the argument. On that note, this was trying to be kind. I'm I'm so happy. <laughs> Good. I'm so happy. This okay. is the best. This is the best. Are we still recording? <laughs> yes, we are. Yeah. We should say goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>